0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alarms and Discursions by G. K. Chesterton. Section 6, Chapters 16 through 18. The Futurists. It was a warm, golden evening, fit for October. I was watching, with regret, a lot of little black pigs being turned out of my garden, when the postman handed to me, with perfunctory haste which doubtless masked his emotion, the declaration of futurism. If you ask me what futurism is, I cannot tell you. Even the futurists themselves seem a little doubtful. Perhaps they are waiting for the future to find out. But if you ask me what its declaration is, I answer eagerly, for I can tell you quite a lot about that. It is written by an Italian named Marinetti in a magazine which is called Poesia. It is headed, Declaration of Futurism, in enormous letters. It is divided off with little numbers and starts straight away like this. 1. We intend to glorify the love of danger the custom of energy, the strength of daring. 2. The essential elements of our poetry will be courage, audacity, and revolt. 3. Literature having up to now glorified thoughtful immobility, ecstasy, and slumber, we wish to exalt the aggressive movement, the feverish insomnia, running the perilous leap, the cuff, and the blow. While I am quite willing to exalt the cuff within reason, it scarcely seems such an entirely new subject for literature as the futurists imagine. It seems to me that even through the slumber which fills the Siege of Troy, the Song of Roland and the Orlando Furioso, and in spite of the thoughtful immobility which marks Pentagruel, Henry V, and Ballad of Chevy Chase, there are occasional gleams of an admiration for courage a readiness to glorify the love of danger, and even the strength of daring, I seem to remember slightly differently spelt somewhere in literature. The distinction, however, seems to be that the warriors of the past went in for tournaments, which were at least dangerous for themselves, while the futurists go in for motor-cars, which are mainly alarming for other people. IT IS THE FUTURIST IN HIS MOTOR WHO DOES THE AGGRESSIVE MOVEMENT, BUT IT IS THE pedestrians WHO GO IN FOR THE RUNNING AND THE PERILOUS LEAP. SECTION NUMBER FOUR SAYS, WE DECLARE THAT THE SPLENDOR OF THE WORLD HAS BEEN ENRICHED WITH A NEW FORM OF BEAUTY, THE BEAUTY OF SPEED. A RACE AUTOMOBILE ADORNED WITH GREAT PIPES LIKE SERPENTS WITH EXPLOSIVE BREATH, A RACE AUTOMOBILE WHICH SEEMS TO RUSH OVER EXPLODING POWDER is more beautiful than the victory of Samothrace. It is also much easier, if you have the money. It is quite clear, however, that you cannot be a futurist at all, unless you are frightfully rich. Then follows this lucid and soul-stirring sentence. We will sing the praises of man holding the flywheel, of which the ideal steering post traverses the earth, impelled itself around the circuit of its own orbit. What a jolly song it would be! so hearty, and with such a simple swing in it. I can imagine the futurist, round the fire in a tavern, trolling out in chorus some ballad with that incomparable refrain, shouting over their swaying flagons some such words as these. A notion came into my head, as new as it was bright, that poems might be written on the subject of a fight. No praise was given to Lancelot, achilles knapp or corbett but we will sing the praises of man holding the flywheel of which the ideal steering post traverses the earth impelled itself around the circuit of its own orbit then least it should be supposed that futurism would be so weak as to permit any democratic restraints upon the violence and levity of the luxurious classes there would be a special verse in honour of the motors also my fathers scaled the mountains in their pilgrimages far, but I feel full of energy while sitting in a car, and petrol is the perfect wine, I lick it and absorb it, so we will sing the praises of man, holding the flywheel of which the ideal steering-post traverses the earth impelled itself around the circuit of its own orbit. Yes, it would be a rollicking catch. I wish there were space to finish the song or to detail all the other sections in the Declaration. Suffice it to say that Futurism has a gratifying dislike both of liberal politics and Christian morals. I say gratifying because, however unfortunately the cross and the cap of liberty have quarreled, they are always united in the feeble hatred of such silly megalomaniacs as these. They will glorify war, the only true hygiene of the world militarism, patriotism, the destructive gesture of anarchism, the beautiful ideas which kill, and the scorn of woman. They will destroy museums, libraries, and fight against moralism, feminism, and all utilitarian cowardice. The proclamation ends with an extraordinary passage, which I cannot understand at all, all about something that is going to happen to Mr. Marinetti when he is forty. As far as I can make out, he will then be killed by other poets, who will be overwhelmed with love and admiration for him. And they will come against us from afar, from everywhere, leaping on the cadence of their first poems, clawing the air with crooked fingers, and scenting at the academy gates the good smell of our decaying minds. Well, it is satisfactory to be told, however, obscurely, that this sort of thing is coming to an end some day, to be replaced by some other tomfoolery. And though I commonly refrain from clawing the air with crooked fingers, I can assure Mr. Marinetti that this omission does not disqualify me, and that I scent the good smell of his decaying mind all right. I think the only other point of futurism is contained in this sentence. It is in Italy that we hurl this overthrowing and inflammatory declaration with which today we found futurism. Or we will free Italy from her numberless museums which cover her with countless cemeteries. I think that rather sums it up. The best way one would think of freeing oneself from a museum would be not to go there. Mr. Marinetti's fathers and grandfathers freed Italy from prisons and torture chambers, places where people held by force. They, being in bondage of moralism, attacked governments as unjust real governments with real guns, such was their utilitarian cowardice that they would die in hundreds upon the bayonets of Austria. I can well imagine why Mr. Marinetti in his motor-car does not wish to look back at the past. If there was one thing that could make him look smaller even than before, it is that roll of dead men's drums, and that dream of Garibaldi going by. THE OLD RADICAL GHOSTS GO BY, MORE REAL THAN THE LIVING MEN, TO ASSAULT I KNOW NOT WHAT RAMPARTED CITY IN HELL, AND MEANWHILE THE FUTURIST STANDS OUTSIDE A MUSEUM IN A WARLIKE ATTITUDE, AND DEFIANTLY TELLS THE OFFICIAL AT THE turnstile THAT HE WILL NEVER, NEVER COME IN. THERE WAS A CERTAIN SOLID USE IN FOOLS. IT IS NOT SO MUCH THAT THEY RUSH IN WHERE ANGELS FEAR TO TREAD, BUT RATHER THAT THEY LET OUT WHAT DEVILS INTEND TO DO. Some perversion of folly will float about nameless and pervade the whole society. Then some lunatic gives it a name, and henceforth it is harmless. With all really evil things, when the danger has appeared, the danger is over. Now it may be hoped that the self-indulgent sprawlers of podesia have put a name once and for all to their philosophy. In a case of their philosophy, to put a name to it is to put an end to it. Yet their philosophy has been very widespread in our time. It could hardly have been pointed and finished, except by this perfect folly. The creed of which, please God, this is the flower and finish, consists ultimately in this statement, that it is bold and spirited to appeal to the future. Now it is entirely weak and half-witted to appeal to the future. A brave man ought to ask for what he wants, not for what he expects to get. A brave man who wants atheism in the future calls himself an atheist. A brave man who wants socialism a socialist. A brave man who wants Catholicism a Catholic. But a weak-minded man who does not know what he wants in the future calls himself a futurist. They have driven all the pigs away. Oh, that they had driven away the prigs and left the pigs. The sky begins to droop with darkness, and all birds and blossoms to descend unfaltering into the healthy underworld, where things slumber and grow. There was just one true phrase of Mr. Marinetti about himself, the feverish insomnia. The whole universe is pouring headlong to the happiness of the night. It is only the madman who has not the courage to sleep. dukes the duc Duke de chamberton pomard was a small but lively relic of a really aristocratic family the members of which were nearly all atheists up to the time of the french revolution but since that event beneficial in such various ways had been very devout. he was a royalist a nationalist and a perfectly sincere patriot in that particular style which consists of ceaselessly asserting THAT ONE'S COUNTRY IS NOT SO MUCH IN DANGER AS ALREADY DESTROYED. HE WROTE CHEERY LITTLE ARTICLES FOR THE ROYALIST PRESS, ENTITLED THE END OF FRANCE, OR THE LAST CRY, OR WHAT-NOT, AND HE GAVE THE FINAL TOUCHES TO A PICTURE OF THE Kaiser, RIDING ACROSS A PAVEMENT OF prostrate PARISIANS WITH A GLOW OF PATRIOTIC EXULTATION. HE WAS QUITE POOR, AND EVEN HIS RELATIONS HAD NO MONEY. He walked briskly to all his meals at a little open café, and he looked just like everybody else. Living in a country where aristocracy does not exist, he had a high opinion of it. He would yearn for the swords and the stately manners of the Pommards before the Revolution, most of whom who had been, in theory, Republicans. But he turned with a more practical eagerness to the one country in Europe where the tricolor has never flown. And men have never been roughly equalised before the state. The beacon and comfort of his life was England, which all Europe sees clearly as the one pure aristocracy that remains. He had, moreover, a mild taste for sport and kept an English bulldog, and he believed the English to be a race of bulldogs, of heroic squires and hardy yeoman vassals because he read all this in English conservative papers, written by exhausted little Levantine clerks. But his reading was naturally, for the most part, in the French conservative papers, though he knew English well, and it was in these that he first heard of the horrible budget. There he read of the confiscatory revolution planned by the Lord Chancellor of the Exchequer, the sinister Georges Lloyd. He also read how chivalrously Prince Arthur Balfour of Burleigh had defied that demagogue, assisted by Austin, the Lord Chamberlain, and a gay and witty Walter Lang. And being a brisk partisan and a capable journalist, he decided to pay England a special visit and report to his papers upon the struggle. He drove for an eternity in an open fly through beautiful woods with a letter of introduction in his pocket to one duke who was to introduce him to another duke. The endless and numberless avenues of bewildering pine woods gave him a queer feeling that he was driving through the countless corridors of a dream. Yet the vast silence and freshness healed his irritations at modern ugliness and unrest. It seemed a background fit for the return of chivalry, "'In such a forest a king and all his court might lose themselves hunting, "'or a knight-errant might perish with no companion but God. "'The castle itself, when he reached it, was somewhat smaller than he had expected, "'but he was delighted with its romantic and castellated outline. "'He was just about to alight when somebody opened two enormous gates at the side, "'and the vehicle drove briskly through. "'That is not the house,' he inquired politely of the driver no sir said the driver controlling the corners of his mouth the lodge sir indeed said the duke to chamberton palmered this is where the duke's land begins oh no sir said the man quite in distress we've been in his grace's land all day the frenchman thanked him and leant back in the carriage feeling as if everything were incredibly huge and vast like gulliver in the country of the broddingnags he got out in front of a long façade of a somewhat severe building, and a little careless man in a shooting jacket and knickerbockers ran down the steps. He had a weak, fair moustache and the dull blue babyish eyes. His features were insignificant, but his manner extremely pleasant and hospitable. This was the Duke of Aylesbury, perhaps the largest landowner in Europe, and known only as a horse breeder, until he began to write abrupt little letters about the budget. He led the French duke upstairs, taking trivialities in a hearty way, and there presented him to another and more important English oligarch, who got up from a writing desk with a slightly senile jerk. He had a gleaming bald head and glasses. The lower part of his face was masked with a short dark beard which did not conceal a beaming smile, not unmixed with sharpness. He stooped a little as he ran, like some sedentary head clerk or cashier and even without the check-book and papers on his desk, he would have given the impression of a merchant or a man of business. He was dressed in a light gray check jacket. He was the Duke of Windsor, the great Unionist statesman. Between these two loose, amiable men, the little Gaul stood erect in his black frock coat with a monstrous gravity of French ceremonial good manners. This stiffness led the Duke of Windsor to put him at his ease like a tenant, and he said, rubbing his hands, "'I was delighted with your letter, delighted. "'I shall be very pleased if I can give you, er, any details.' "'My visit,' said the Frenchman, "'scarcely suffices for the scientific exhaustion of detail. "'I seek only the idea, the idea, "'that is always the immediate thing.' "'Quite so,' said the other rapidly, "'quite so, the idea.' "'Feeling somehow that it was his turn,' the English duke having done all that could be required of him, Pomerant had to say, I mean the idea of aristocracy. I regard this as the last great battle for the idea. Aristocracy, like any other thing, must justify itself to mankind. Aristocracy is good because it preserves a picture of human dignity, in a world where that dignity is often obscured by servile necessities. Aristocracy alone... keep a certain high reticence of soul and body a certain noble distance between the sexes the duke of aylesbury who had a clouded recollection of having squirted soda water down the neck of a countess on the previous evening looked somewhat gloomy as if lamenting the theoretic spirit of the latin race the elder duke laughed heartily and said well well you know we english are horribly practical with us the great question is the land "'Out here in the country? "'Do you know this part?' "'Yes, yes,' cried the Frenchman eagerly. "'I see what you mean. "'The country, the old rustic life of humanity, "'a holy war upon the bloated and filthy towns. "'What right have these anarchists "'to attack your busy and prosperous countrysides? "'Have they not thriven under your management? "'Are not the English villages "'always growing larger and gayer "'under the enthusiastic leadership "'of their encouraging squires? "'Have you not the maypole? have you not marry England? The Duke of Aylesbury made a noise in his throat, and then said very indistinctly, they, they all go to London. All go to London? repeated Pomard with a blank stare. Why? This time nobody answered, and Pommard had to attack again. The spirit of aristocracy is essentially opposed to the greed of the industrial cities. Yet in France there are actually one or two nobles so vile as to drive coal and gas trades and drive them hard. The Duke of Windsor looked at the carpet. The Duke of Islesbury went and looked out of the window. At length the latter said, That's rather stiff, you know. One has to look after one's own business in town as well. Do not say it, cried the little Frenchman starting up. I tell you all Europe, is one fight between business and honor. If we do not fight for honor, who will? What other right have we, two poor-legged sinners, to titles and quartered shields, except that we staggeringly support some idea of giving things which cannot be demanded, and avoiding things which cannot be punished? Our only claim is to be a wall across Christendom, against the Jew peddlers and pawnbrokers, against the Goldsteins and the and the Duke of Aylesbury swung round with his hands in his pockets. "'Oh, I say,' he said, "'you've been reading Lloyd George. "'Nobody but dirty radicals can say a word against Goldstein.' "'I certainly cannot permit,' said the elder Duke, rising rather shakily, "'the respected name of Lord Goldstein. "'He intended to be impressive, "'but there was something in the Frenchman's eye that is not so easily impressed. "'There shone there that steel, which is the mind of France.' Gentlemen, he said, I think I have all the details now. You have ruled England for four hundred years. By your own account, you have not made the countryside endurable to men. By your own account, you have helped the victory of vulgarity and smoke. And by your own account, you are hand in glove with those very money-grubbers and adventurers, whom gentlemen have no other business but to keep at bay. I do not know what your people will do, but my people would kill you. Some seconds afterward he had left the Duke's house, and some hours afterward the Duke's estate. THE GLORY OF GRAY I suppose that, taking this summer as a whole, people will not call it an appropriate time for praising the English climate. But for my part I will praise the English climate till I die, even if I die of the English climate. There is no weather so good as English weather. In a real sense, there is no weather at all anywhere but in England. In France you have much sun and some rain. In Italy you have hot winds and cold winds. In Scotland and Ireland you have rain either thick or thin. In America you have hells of heat and cold. And in the tropics you have sunstrokes varied by thunderbolts. But all these you have on a broad and brutal scale, and you settle down into contentment or despair. Only in our own romantic country do you have the strictly romantic thing called weather, beautiful and changing as a woman. The great English landscape painters, neglected now like everything that is English, have this salient distinction, that the weather is not the atmosphere of their pictures, it is the subject of their pictures. They paint portraits of the weather, the weather set to constable, the weather posed for Turner. And a deuce of a pose it was this cannot truly be said of the greatest of their continental models or rivals poisson and claude painted objects ancient cities or perfect arcadian shepherds through a clear medium of the climate but in the english painters weather is the hero with turner an adelphi hero taunting flashing and fighting melodramatic but really magnificent The English climate, a tall and terrible protagonist, robed in rain and thunder and snow and sunlight, fills the whole canvas and the whole foreground. I admit the superiority of many other French things, besides French art, but I will not yield an inch on the superiority of English weather and weather painting. Why, the French have not even got a word for weather, and you must ask for the weather in French as if you were asking for the time in English." Then again, variety of climate should always go with stability of abode. The weather in the desert is monotonous, and as natural consequence the Arabs wander about, hoping it may be different somewhere. But an Englishman's house is not only his castle, it is his fairy castle. Clouds and colors of every very dawn and eve are perpetually touching and turning it from clay to gold, or from gold to ivory. There is a line of woodland beyond a corner of my garden which is literally different on every one of 365 days. Sometimes it seems as near as a hedge, and sometimes as far as a faint and fiery evening cloud. The same principle, by the way, applies to the difficult problem of wives. Variability is one of the virtues of a woman. It avoids the crude requirement of polygamy, so long as you have one good wife you're sure to have a spiritual harem. Now, among the heresies that are spoken in this matter is the habit of calling a grey day a colourless day. Grey is a colour, and can be a very powerful and pleasing colour. There is also an insulting style of speech about one grey day just like another. You might as well talk about one green tree just like another. A grey clouded sky is indeed a canopy between us and the sun, So is a green tree, if it comes to that. But the gray umbrellas differ as much as the green in their style and shape, in their tint and tilt. One day may be gray like steel, another gray like dove's plumage. One may seem gray like the deathly frost, and another gray like the smoke of substantial kitchens. No things could seem further apart than the doubt of gray and the decision of scarlet. Yet gray and red can mingle, as they do in the morning clouds, and also in a sort of warm, smoky stone, of which they build the little towns in the West Country. In those towns, even the houses that are wholly grey have a glow in them, as if their secret firesides were such furnaces of hospitality as faintly to transfuse the walls like walls of cloud. And wandering in those Westland parts, I did once really find a sign-post pointing up a steep, crooked path to a town that was called Clouds. I did not climb up to it. I feared that either the town would not be good enough for the name, or I should not be good enough for the town. Anyhow, the little hamlets of the warm gray stone have a geniality which is not achieved by all the artistic scarlet of the suburbs, as if it were better to warm one's hands at the ashes of Glastonbury than at the painted flames of Croydon. Again, the enemies of gray, those astute, daring, and evil-minded men, are fond of bringing forward the argument that colors suffer in gray weather, and that strong sunlight is necessary to all the hues of heaven and earth. Here again there are two words to be said, and it is essential to distinguish. It is true the sun is needed to burnish and bring into bloom the tertiary and dubious colors, the colors of peat, pea-soup, Impressionist sketches, brown velvet coats, olives, gray and blue slates, the complexions of vegetarians, the tints of volcanic rock, chocolate cocoa, mud, soot, slime, old boots. The delicate shades of these do need the sunlight to bring out the faint beauty that often clings to them. But if you have a healthy negro taste and color, if you choke your garden with poppies and geraniums, if you paint your house sky blue and scarlet, if you wear, let us say, a golden top hat and a crimson frock coat, you will not only be visible on the greyest day, but you will notice that your costume and environment produce a certain singular effect. You will find, I mean, that rich colors actually look more luminous on a gray day, because they are seen against a somber background and seem to be burning with a luster of their own. Against the dark sky all flowers look like fireworks. There's something strange about them, at once vivid and secret, like flowers traced in a fire in the phantasmal garden of a witch. A bright blue sky is necessarily the highlight of the picture, and its brightness kills all the bright blue flowers. But on a grey day the larkspur looks like fallen heaven, the red daisies are really the red lost eyes of day, and the sunflower is the vice-regent of the sun. Lastly, there is this value about the color that men call colorless, that it suggests in some way the mixed and troubled average of existence, especially in its quality of strife and expectation and promise. Gray is a color that always seems on the eve of changing to some other color, of brightening into blue, or blanching into white, or bursting into green and gold. So we may be perpetually reminded of the indefinite hope that is in doubt itself, and when there is gray weather in our hills or gray hairs in our head, perhaps they may still remind us of the morning. The end of Chapter sixteen through eighteen.